21, we'll be looking at verses 15 to 18. And again, thanks Hannah and Miriam for that music this morning. We're going to be talking about the supremacy of Christ this morning. And I'd like to read for us again Colossians 1, verses 15 to 18. The scripture says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the scripture this morning, again we thank you for your Holy Spirit that guides us and directs us in our thoughts, that helps us to understand your word and apply it to our life. And I pray that today we would stand in awe of the glory and the beauty of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Many years ago, before Gail and I were first married, we attended a premarital conference in Williamsburg, Virginia. And it was a lovely setting for the conference. We were there with some friends, too. And one of the nights of the conference, we decided to go out for dinner at Colonial Williamsburg. If you've ever been there, you know, it's this historic setting, and they had a very beautiful restaurant there that's kind of a traditional southern style. And uh, when we went in there, I had no idea what to expect. I don't remember exactly what we ate, but my overall impression of the meal was that it was just a, a feast. It was a bounty. And I think the thing that stuck out to me the most was that when I sat down at the table, there was more silverware than I'd ever seen in my life. It just kind of went running off the table in both directions and even on the top. And they brought out kind of course after course in this uh, meal that we had ordered that evening, a traditional southern dinner. And the other thing that impressed me was between each course, there was a waiter there who would come and he had a little uh, crumb uh, brush and a little, you know, thing that he kind of swept the crumbs into off of your place after every course. And it was uh, one of those kind of experiences that I had never had before. When I think about that meal, though, I think of this sumptuous feast that we enjoy. It was almost more than you could take in in an evening. When I come to this passage of Scripture and I read what Paul says about Jesus Christ, that's the way that I feel. When he lifts up Jesus Christ and he begins to tell us about his glory, his majesty, who he is, his power, his awesomeness, it's almost more than you can take in in one setting. But today we're going to look at and talk about this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And what does the scripture say about that? Well, if you were to survey a number of Americans today and ask that question, who is Jesus? You would get a variety of answers. Some people would call him a prophet or a religious leader. Some people would say he was just a philosopher or a teacher, a good moral teacher. Some might call him a miracle worker or healer, and there would be those who would call him God, but many would say that he is just a man. He's just a man, just like any other religious leader. 
Well, who's telling the truth? I mean, who's really got the story right when it comes to Jesus Christ? And how do we find out? It's why we go to the Scriptures to read these accounts of those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. And what's remarkable is that those who knew him best, like Peter and John and James and the others who were disciples of his, all agreed that Jesus was more than just a man, much more. They had come to know and understand who he is in truth. And they wrote these things for us so that we might know the truth about Jesus too. And Paul, who wrote this book, is one who came to know Christ after his death and resurrection. And he too, who once was a persecutor of Jesus Christ, came to believe that he was Lord and God. You see, either Jesus is who he claimed to be or not. It's really as simple as that. And it's an important question for all of us to answer. Jesus himself said in John 8, 24, that unless you believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will die in your sins. You will be lost forever. So who is Jesus Christ? Well, it's the most important question we will ever answer. For the unbeliever, it's the difference between life and death. For the believer, it is the key to spiritual growth. Because Paul will tell us in Colossians that in Christ are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If we want to know God and we want to grow in our relationship with Him, then we need to know Jesus Christ. So what does the Bible say about Jesus? What Paul writes here, he begins by first of all telling us that Jesus is God. He is God. Verse 15. He says that he is the image of the invisible God. And when the Bible uses the word image, it doesn't mean that Jesus is less than God. Sometimes people misunderstand that. What the word image means is it refers to his likeness or manifestation. That Jesus is God. He is the manifestation of God. Or another way that we would say it is that he is God in human flesh. The Bible tells us that God is spirit. He is invisible. We cannot see him. But Jesus made God visible when God became a man and dwelt among us. In Hebrews 1.3, the scripture says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. In John 1.18, John said that no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And so again, when Jesus took on our humanity, our flesh and blood, if you will, he was fully God and he became fully man. And he made God known to us. So much so that Jesus would say to his disciples in John 14, 9, that he who has seen me has seen the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? If we want to know what God is like, we need to look at Jesus Christ. On the screen today, one of the images, or the image that is there of Jesus, is actually taken from the Jesus film that was produced a number of years ago. And when that movie was made, the producers uh, were very careful to try and be as authentic as they could in all of the different parts of the, of the film. 
And so one of the things that they had to do is they had to find a number of people to play the parts of the disciples and the people in the crowds. And they were looking for faces that were 2,000 years old, if you will. They wanted to look for faces that would be like the faces Christ saw when he was here. And so the man who was in charge of rounding up and finding these extras, uh, he did a fantastic job. He went out uh, throughout Israel and he was looking for people of Yemenite or Moroccan background or things like that, people groups like that, whose physical characteristics had changed very little over the centuries. He found the people that he wanted, but they were very primitive by modern standards. Some had never seen a movie. Uh, Some were uh, not uh, liking the fact that they had to get up at 5.30 in the morning to be on the set for this film. Uh, Some were not used to taking orders, especially from outsiders. And so what he did was he organized uh, these villages and he had a couple men who would be like captains of each of these crews that were working. He wanted them to know exactly what was happening and what they were to do each day. And by the time the film was produced, these extras had worked more than 160,000 extra days. I said, it might seem strange to film a picture about the Son of God using so many non-believers, but here's what began to happen through the production of that film. The men in particular who played the roles of the disciples were very interested in how to do this. And one day, uh, they came to the producer, and they said, could you explain to us about this person, Jesus, and how the disciples responded to him? And when they understood the nature of this film, they actually approached it with an attitude of reverence toward the picture and their part in it. And they wanted to do this right. They wanted to do it well. And Paul Eshelman said that it really became clear as the movie went on why God wanted all of these non-believers to be a part of the production. Because as each new day of filming unfolded more of the gospel to them, they were drawn to the person of Jesus Christ. They slowly came to understand who this man, Jesus, really was. And we could see the Holy Spirit at work on the set, touching hearts and changing lives. As people come to know who Jesus really is, if they will take the time to read the Scriptures or to investigate what we have been given, they will come to see that Jesus is more than just a man, that he is indeed God, the Savior of the world. If we want to know what God is like, we need to look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Paul also writes that he is the Lord of creation in verses 15 to 17. He said that he is the firstborn over all of creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. When you think about Jesus, he uses this word firstborn. And that doesn't have the same meaning to us that it did back in that Jewish context. People understood what it meant to be a firstborn. They understood the rights and the privileges that were associated with that. What does the word firstborn mean? Well, if you were to ask Jehovah's Witnesses, they would say that it means that Jesus had a beginning. 
that he is the first and direct creation of God, but he is not equal to God. And if you were to ask Mormons, those who belong to the Latter-day Saints, they would say that Jesus is our elder brother and that one day we can become a God just like him. Both would say that Jesus is not God in the way that we understand the Scriptures. We believe in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that all three are equal, that they all have the same attributes, that there is one God who exists in three distinct persons. And Jesus came to our earth to show us what God is like. You know, the false teachers who were present at Colossae were also struggling with this too. And they denied the deity of Christ. The false teachers at Colossus said that God was somehow remote and inaccessible. He was off in the distance somewhere. And the only way that we could get to know God or contact God was through a long series of intermediaries. The spirit world of angels and demons and those who inhabit that world. And so that the way that you got to know God was through trying to manipulate those spirits or those angels. Jesus was just one of those intermediaries is what they would say. It's kind of like how some people in our world today approach the spirit world. And they live in fear of the spirits and they want to try to manipulate or control them in order to appease God. But they're not really sure who that God is. And what Paul writes here is that Jesus is God. And the way that we get to know Him is not by what the Gnostics said. You know, the Gnostics said the way you get to know God is to climb the steps of their secret knowledge. But Paul writes the way that we get to know God is through Jesus Christ. So what does the Bible say? And what does it mean by the word firstborn? The word firstborn denotes both priority in time and supremacy in rank. Priority in time and supremacy in rank. It refers to his rights and privileges as sons. Uh, he is the Lord of creation because he existed before the worlds were made. He is eternal without beginning or end. Jesus would say of himself that I am the Alpha and the Omega. He was here before the worlds were made. And he will be here for all of eternity. In John 1.1, 1, 1, John said, In the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's hard sometimes for us to imagine it, isn't it? God, without beginning or end. And he has always existed because when we think of our universe or we think of the things we know in this world, everything we know has a beginning or end. It's finite, it's limited. But God is not. He is eternal. He is the Lord of creation because He created all things in heaven and on earth. The things we can see and the things that we can't see. From the farthest reaches of the universe to the smallest particles that make up all matter, He made it all. For by Him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And don't you just sometimes stand in amazement when you see or hear the discoveries that are being made today? I mean, when I look at the pictures that come from the Hubble uh, Space Telescope, you know, and I see those farthest reaches of the universe and how big and how vast this creation is, I stand in awe of a God 
who made that. But when we go the other direction too and they tell us about these small subparticles that make up matter and they talk about theories about superstrings and the way that things work on that most microscopic of all levels, that too amazes me. And I stand in awe of Jesus who made it all. He is over all power and authority. There are four mentioned here of thrones and powers and rulers and authorities. Uh, You know, uh, those spirits or demons that the Colossians, these false teachers were trying to control and manipulate? Jesus made them all. He is over all. And we don't need to go through all of them to get to God. We just need to go to Jesus. All things exist for Him and for His glory. He's the source of life. He's the reason that they exist. He existed before the worlds were made and He is the one who sustains them all by His power. Patrick Boyle tells a story about a man named Frank Sheed. He's an apologist and he's a Catholic in background and one day he was speaking to a large group about the glories of Christ and the order of the universe and he was talking about God's infinite design in our world. And some of the people that were in the audience that day were challenging him. They were kind of heckling him about it. And one man said, I could make a better universe than your God. And Sheed, who was pretty quick with his wit, replied, he said, you know, I won't ask you to make a universe But could you just make a rabbit to establish some confidence here? (laughs) You know, there are people who challenge that. Who challenge the way the world was made or what God was thinking. But we do not have the power and ability to create life. Only God does. And only He is sovereign. Is Jesus just a man? No, He's the Lord of creation. He's the one who designed our world and we see his infinite wisdom and plan. Thirdly, Paul will write of Jesus that he is also the Lord of the new creation, which is the church. He goes on in verse 18 to say that he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. He is our authority in the church. He's the one who gives direction to the church. The reason that we come before Him and we pray is because we want to know His will for our lives and for our church. The reason we study the Scripture is because we want to know Him better and understand who He is and what His will is for our life. The Bible tells us here that He is the source of life and He gives life to all who believe in Him. And when we come to trust in Christ as our Savior and Lord, we become a new creation in Christ. And out of the world He has called out this assembly of believers, which He calls the church, to represent Him in this world. And to work together and to be His hands and feet and to minister to those who do not know Him. He calls us into a new family new relationships, a new community of which we are a part. And this community of believers extends beyond the local church to the church universal, worldwide. Believers in every country that we share uh, in common this relationship with Jesus Christ as our head. He's the beginning. 
The church started with him. It was his idea and his plan for reaching a lost world. And even though in the church we may stumble and fall at times, and there are times when the church may not be all that God intends it to be, it is still God's plan for reaching a world that needs to know him. He's the firstborn from the dead, Paul declares. He triumphed over sin and over death and over Satan. He is first in time and he is first in rank. He's the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. He is our Lord. He's our Savior. He is supreme. You know, when you read through these character qualities that Paul talks about here, he piles them up one on top of the other. And how do you, how do you take that all in? It is amazing to simply ponder it, to look at what he says about the glory of Christ, and to meditate on this one who made himself known in order that he could become our Savior. When Jesus came to earth to die on that cross, he knew what his mission was, and he came to die for sinners like you and like me, that we might know him and know the Father and spend all of eternity with him. In 1893, there was a famous a World's Fair that was held in Chicago. It was called the World's Columbian Exposition that year, and an astronomical number of people came to see it for that time. 21 million people made their way to Chicago in a pre-automobile era to see this World Fair and the exhibits that were there. Chicago had rebuilt after the Great Fire in 1873, and they really wanted to kind of show off to the rest of the world and show what uh, they had done as a city and how they had been rebuilt from the ashes. And the show was good. Among the features that year in this Columbian Exposition was something that was called the World Parliament of Religions. It, in it, uh, they had representatives from the world's religions that were there that were going to speak and share their best points. And perhaps they thought they might come up with a new world religion. Well, D.L. Moody, the evangelist, saw this as a great chance for evangelism. 21 million people coming to Chicago. That's a great opportunity to share the gospel. And so he commissioned evangelists and he assigned them preaching posts throughout the city. They used churches, they rented theaters, he even rented a circus tent to preach the word. And Moody's friends wanted him to attack this parliament of religions. But he refused and said, saying, that I am going to preach the glories of Christ. That I am going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that men will turn to him. D.L. Moody knew that preaching Christ preeminent, the peerless, supreme, all-sufficient Christ clearly presented would do the job, and indeed it did. There are those who look on this Chicago campaign in Moody's life as his greatest evangelistic work. And thousands came to know Christ during that time. You know, I think about Moody's approach in lifting up the glories of Christ, and I think that's still the best approach when it comes to evangelism.
There are times when we need to answer the questions that people have and we need to meet the challenges of skeptics and we need to understand apologetics and be able to present a defense for Christ. But I think the very best way to draw people to Christ is to talk about Him as our Savior and Lord, our best friend, the one that we know, the one who has changed our life, the one who is sovereign over heaven and earth, the one who is this wonderful, majestic Christ. And I pray that we would do that. My prayer is that we as individuals, as a church, would, that we would live in such a way that others would see Jesus in us and be drawn to him. I pray that we would speak of Christ in such a way that others would know that we have that kind of genuine relationship with him. When I came to know Christ in a deeper way, it was because of people who talked about Jesus like he was their best friend. And I want to encourage you to do that too. In your conversations, whether it's at work or with family, even this week, maybe as you gather for Thanksgiving meals, there's going to be an opportunity to give thanks or to pray or to share. Maybe there'll be an opportunity for you to talk about Jesus. Who is this Jesus? He is God. He is the Creator. He's the Savior. He's my Lord. And I would pray that all of us would be able to say that as well. That He is our Savior and Lord. If you are here today and you're not sure about your relationship with Christ, I want to give you an opportunity to ask Him into your heart to be your Savior and Lord. I do this on occasion and I believe that God uses these times in a very significant way. Maybe you've come today and you're just visiting and you're here for the first time or maybe you've been coming a few weeks and you're just not sure about where you stand in your relationship with Christ. Well, if you'd like to know Him as your Savior and Lord today, I'd invite you to just simply repeat a prayer that I'm going to say after me in the quietness of your own heart. And God will take you at your word and He will come into your life to be your Savior and Lord. And then I want to encourage you to tell me or tell someone that you've come with so that we can help you to take the next steps and grow in your relationship with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to be our Savior and Lord. We are well aware of our sin, our fallenness, and that we have done things that are displeasing in your sight. And I pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts and that you would draw us to yourself. If you're here today and you would like to know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, would you repeat this prayer after me in your own heart? But dear Jesus, I need you. And I thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. And I open the door to my heart and I invite you to come in to be my Savior and Lord. Thank you for forgiving my sins. Thank you for giving me eternal life. Help me to know you better and to follow your will for my life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now before we do this next song, we have a video clip that I want to show you. <laughs> and it's uh, by a man named Steve Harvey, who is a, a comedian, and I don't know uh, much about him at all. It was a clip in which he was speaking to a secular audience. 
And it's quite a remarkable thing to see this man who is a comedian and how he introduces Jesus Christ to this secular audience. I want you to see it, and I think you'll get the connection to the message, and then we'll sing our last song. Listen to these uh, words of Scripture as our benediction today. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. Now to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.